So verses 3 to 8 taught us a radical idea that if we want to worship God, the first step is to learn to think of ourselves as part of a body, that body being the local church. I say radical. Um, I don't say original. I don't think anything I'm saying this weekend is likely to be particularly original. To Certainly not original to me. I don't think I've had an original idea in my whole life. But it is radical. Instinctively, we make our worship of God an individual thing between us and him. Of course, it should always be personal, but personal isn't the same as individual. Instinctively, we make it an individual thing between us and him. But if you think of it, it could never be individual. For who is this God who we're aiming to worship? The Bible says he is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal, all interdependent, all in unique ways serving one another. In other words, our God is deeply relational. That's what pleases him. And so if we are to worship him, we too have to be deeply relational. There is just no other way of worshipping him. Verses 3 to 8 say that if we are Christians, God has put us in a body. And as much as your kidney is a part of you, we are connected to each other. And whatever we think we might achieve for God independently of one another is as nothing compared with what we can do as a body. So here's the idea again. If we want to worship God, the first step is to learn to think of ourselves as a member of a body. It is so important, by the way, that we hold on to each of those three things from last talk, equal, interdependent, and unique. If you had just equal and unique, for instance, well, we could just be a club. I said earlier that we, we all know how a club works. And even for the people who are, perhaps you're a member of a club, I'm a member of a golf club, for instance. And even for the people who are most into their club, it still represents only a small aspect of their life. And I think many people think of church that way. So here we go. They've got their church, sure, but they've also got their home and their work and their social life. Uh, and they might see how they need to be accountable to others in church as far as church goes, but not in the rest of it. And so this idea of a body becomes, in fact, a very thin idea that relates to maybe four or five hours of my week at most. But then we look again at verse 5. Each member belongs to all the others. And he doesn't say, does he, insofar as church activities are concerned. And nor does he say on a Sunday morning and Tuesday evening. No, belongs to each other. A better diagram, therefore, is this. It pulls our home life into church. It pulls our work into church. It pulls our social life into church. Uh, all, all as one of the gifts that God has given us uniquely for the good of that body. So our work and the money we earn at work is one of the gifts that God has given us for the good of the body. Our social life. I, I don't mean by that that all or even most of my social life is spent with people from church. But it does mean that I begin to see my social life in terms of how I can glorify God. Remember, that's our goal, to worship God with all our lives. 
And within me, an instinct is growing that I need others in church to help me make sense of how I glorify God with that social life. That's not a question I can answer entirely by myself. So the word interdependent there protects us from becoming a mere club. On the other hand, the word unique protects us from becoming a cult. Now, you know that in a a cult, one person or a few people inappropriately control every aspect of everyone's life. And we might wonder, how is what Paul is calling for here different from that? The answer, I think, is that because while we are to be accountable to each other, we're also unique with our own gifts and responsibilities. So take uh, my church, St. Philemon's, and me and Alice in our role as parents. It is absolutely healthy that we open ourselves up to our church to support us and help us become wiser as parents. But at the end of the day, the responsibility for bringing Lucy Bear and Charlotte up lies in a particular way uniquely with us. And we've got to get on with it. And the rest of our church has to get on with the roles that God has given them. And do you remember how the body moves fastest? Not by everyone trying to do each other's job for them and not by everyone worrying where everyone else is, if everyone else is doing their job, but by each part doing their own role for all that they're worth. So we're not a club, but we're not a cult either. We're a body. And the beauty of this body, as I said before, is that our struggles belong to one another, our weaknesses belong to one another, our problems, doubts, joys, sorrows, successes, gifts. We're not alone. We're in it together. Almost always the first and most practical step towards body consciousness will be to focus on our interaction with our own small group within church. You can't know everybody equally well in in a church your size, but you can know a few people really well. And so a I don't know what that is for you, a home group or a a men's group or or a morning group might be a good place to focus our growth in this area on. Anyway, there's the idea of the church as a body. If you've been snoozing, you can wake up. So we're going to get into something new. What we're going to think about now is the body in action. In verses 9 to 13, we find 13 commands addressed to all of us concerning how we relate to each other as a body. All of them, I suggest, flow from a body mindset. And the key one is the first, love must be sincere. I say it's the key one because in the original, love must be sincere is one sentence, and all the other 12 commands are one other sentence. Uh, Everything from hate what is evil down to practice hospitality. So I take it that those 12 commands are explaining to us what love is when it is sincere, when it is not just a pretense, when it is not just a platitude. Um, have you ever seen these old um, commands, love is? Does anyone remember these? There's a way back. I can read them for you. Love is being there for each other. Love is getting used to his designer stubble. I should have thought that love is putting some clothes on, but there we are. Um, <laughs> Here we are going to see what love really is. And the first command is a surprise. Love is moral, verse 9. Love is moral. Hate what is evil. 
cling to what is good. So the first command about love involves hate. <laughs> Does that surprise you? Actually, they, they do have to go together. If I love football, I've got to hate diving in the box because it kills football. If I love my friends, I've got to hate the cancer he is facing. And the greatest threat to people of all is evil. And the best thing for people is what is morally good. And so here's the first aspect of a church, in, of a church body in action. Love doesn't say, who cares? It doesn't say, sure, what they're getting into is wicked, but it's none of my business. It doesn't say, I'm not the sort of person who would ever comment or challenge or encourage, encourage others in any direction at all. Love has a holy fear of people becoming bitter or unforgiving. It has a holy concern for people drifting from the fellowship. It has holy ambition for people to become more like Christ. Love is moral. Verse 10, love is relational. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Two of the 59 one another commands of the New Testament, which just makes the point that we cannot love people without really being in their lives, and we cannot love people without allowing them to love and serve us back. Someone I was talking to over coffee was very keen for me to make this point, that it's also being served as well as serving. That takes a mindset to be allowed to allow other people to do that, doesn't it? I was very happy to make that point on their behalf. The word for love in verse 10 is literally brotherly love, and that's instructive, isn't it? Because unlike a, a mere friend, a brother you don't get to choose, and a brother you don't get to drop. Whatever they do, they will always be your brother, won't they? What does it mean to honor one another? I guess it means longing to see one another praised, like naturally we want to see ourselves praised, and longing to see one another pleased, like naturally we want to see ourselves pleased. Take a weekend away like this, and we all have different preferences, don't we, for everything from where will I sit when I come into this room to um, how, when will I go to bed and how loudly I will talk outside the bedrooms of the children sleeping. I've been told off twice for that already. Sorry. As our minds are starting to grasp this idea of being part of a body, that's the kind of questions we start asking ourselves more and more, isn't it? How, how can I, I honour people? How can I praise them? How can I please them? Those around me. That's how we worship God, says Paul, by honoring one another. Love is relational. Verse 11, you with me? Love is hard working. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Serving is literally slaving for, which certainly includes the idea of submitting to God, but also laboring, getting our minds tired, our hearts broken, our hands dirty. And we're to do it with zeal. That first phrase could be translated, keep your speed up. Don't slow down. Very interesting that in the New Testament, where, wherever the word zeal is used, so far as I can tell, almost always it is connected to hard work and specifically to putting ourselves out for other people. Love is throwing some energy at that, keeping our speed up with that. I love the story of D.L. Moody when he was a young man and he turned up at a church in Chicago 
and volunteered to lead a children's group. And they said to him, well, that's nice, but we don't really have any children coming to our church at the moment. You're going to have to find some. So what did D.L. Moody do? This is in the days before social media, much harder, I think, than now it would be. And he was working in a time of place of almost total social chaos where most of the kids were very rough, um, frankly, like where I live. And he threw some energy at it and he went door to door, door to door, organizing wholesome things that kids would enjoy, all the while teaching Christ to them, earnestly loving them. If one kid didn't turn up uh, one morning, he would notice, and he would be round that house the afternoon to check on the parents and see how the kid was doing and what was going on. And they knew he loved them. Until after a few years, there were hundreds of kids in that Sunday school because he threw some energy at it and kept his speed up. When Mark Ruston died, and um, uh, I guess there'll be a few here who have been very blessed by, by him in the past. I never knew him, but I guess you did well. Uh, his obituary was in the Times, I understand, and let me read a bit of it to you. I think I'm challenged most by the man's sheer, dogged, hard work and industry. It has been well said that the sign of God at work is his servants at work, and Mark did not stop. There was nothing manic, rushed, or workaholic about him. But in a steady, calm manner, he just kept beavering away, preparing to preach, always freshly, the old, old story, sitting on key councils and committees, or befriending and advising individuals. He was so constrained by the love of the Lord Jesus and so convinced that the gospel alone was the power of salvation that he cheerfully spent himself for all. I read somewhere else that when he was terminally ill in hospital, aged 73, a friend went to visit him and asked if there was anything he needed. Actually, there is, he said. I've run out of evangelistic booklets. Love is hardworking. Verse 12, love is hopeful. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The Christian life is full of difficulty, and any Christian church, therefore, is full of difficulty. So how does love respond? It rejoices. It remains patient. It prays. And why do we do these things? Because we believe that no matter how bad the situation is, God is up to something good. He's the expert of using bad for good, isn't he? And so the long-term destination is good, and also the means of getting there is good. For, good. for God does not needlessly cause his children pain. And we as believers love each other by breathing that hope into one another as we rejoice, as we stick at it, as we pray. Often in church, we need to borrow one another's hope, don't we? Because honestly, we don't have it ourselves just now. And we need someone to draw alongside us and, so to speak, put their arm around us and say, I know you don't hope very much, but I do for you. And I am confident that God is good. And the destination is good. And the means of getting there are good. Borrow some of my hope for a while. I wonder, can you relate to having borrowed someone's hope like that? I certainly can for a period of weeks, months, even years. It was this keeping of me. And churches need people with that kind of ministry. Love is hopeful. 
Then lastly, verse 13, love is open. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Christianity, it's been said, is the religion of the open hand, the open heart, and the open door. That word hospitality, I think you, you, you probably know, means literally love of the stranger. So it's got nothing to do with dinner parties. Well, certainly those kinds of dinner parties where you welcome people into a pristine home. Yeah, it's pristine because you spent three hours getting it ready and you're not going to do that again for another couple of months. And then you lay on for them impressive food only to usher them out a couple of hours later. No, no, no. This is about loving people who are different from you. Loving them as you would love someone who was just like you. Church is not a homogenous club of people like us whom we'd naturally go on holiday with. Church is a supernatural fellowship of people very unlike us to whom we have been bound in love by God. And that love is to be practical. So love strangers in ways that makes a difference to them. I love the story of Samuel Bradburn. This is going a long way back. Who was a Methodist preacher in a poor area and was himself very hard up. Methodist preachers generally lived off what their congregations could give them. And his friend and mentor, John Wesley, wrote to him to encourage him. And he wrote, Dear Sammy, uh, trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Which is a quotation from Psalm 37. And he enclosed in the letter uh, a couple of five-pound notes, which in the 18th century was a very considerable amount of money. And Bradburn replied in, by letter, I have often been struck with the beauty of the verse you quoted. Remember, again, verily thou shalt be fed. Um, but I must confess that I never before saw in it such useful explanatory notes as were included in your letter. So love is open, the open hands, the open heart, the open home. Let's, um, let's get some new names in our visitor's book this year. Let's get some names of people who are very different from us, who are difficult to love. Take risks in friendship building. Let people in. Don't assume that because someone is different from us and it's hard to get them to know them at, at first, that it won't be very precious to get to know them over time. Um, a couple of books on this that I have found very provocative for me. I can't pretend to begin to put them into practice, but I'm trying. This one is The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. I think this is beautifully written um, and very provocative. Um, recommend that. And the other book is Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. Easy to read, difficult to put into practice. Again, I warmly commend that to you. This, I mean, it's challenging, this, isn't it? I don't know how you're feeling as you sit here listening to all this stuff. I, I should think we all agree that the kind of love I am describing would be jolly nice, nice to receive. <laughs> <laughs> The love that ever gives, forgives, outlives, and ever stands with open hands, and while it lives, it gives. For this is love's prerogative to give and give and give. Well, who wouldn't like receiving that? It's beautiful, but at the same time, would you agree it is very challenging to do? 
This is, in truth, the polar opposite of what comes naturally to us. I want to try out for size a kind of a speech bubble, which I'm imagining hovering above your heads. Okay? And, you, you know, don't tell me out loud whether this is accurate or not. But I wonder if, like me, when you hear this list of commands, want to say, hmm, this is good, but too difficult for me. I'm not saying it's bad. Loving strangers, what a good idea. But I am saying it's unrealistic for me. In fact, I wonder if it's dangerously unrealistic. I wonder if I were to take steps towards this, it would tip me over the edge. I'm just about surviving as it is. And if I do this, I will fall apart. I wonder if you feel a little bit like that. This is too tiring, too demanding, too painful. I don't know. Maybe you're not. Lucky you, if you're not. Now, life is complicated, and we work this stuff out with the help of other people. And I'm not presuming to speak into your situation. There are others who actually know you. You might be able to do that. But I think that Romans would say, take care when you think like that, because it is, take care to locate the issue where the issue is at. It could well be that the issue there is, is primarily circumstantial. But Romans would say, quite a lot of the problem that we're dealing with when we think and talk like that is a problem that is closer to home. It's got to do with what we're naturally like. Once again, Romans chapter 1 tells us what we're naturally like. And I'm not picking on anyone. This is all of us are like this. Naturally, what comes to naturally to us is to be loveless, hopeless, immoral, unrelational, tight-fistedly narrow. It's to be filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Well, if that's naturally what I'm like, of course I'm going to find all this stuff very difficult. How could anyone do this? Well, on to the final point for this morning. The body's lifeblood. In this list of 13 commands, the very middle one goes like this. Keep your spiritual fervor. Literally, keep the fervor of the spirit. What that's saying is that for any of this to happen, it's got to happen through God's Spirit working within us. It's not enough just being told to do it. God has got to be at work in us to make us want to do it. Um, I can illustrate this with, with a, a balloon. Here we go. This is a terrible idea because I'll blow it up and then I'll be out of breath. I can't speak to you, but maybe you'll be pleased about that. I don't know. There we go. Happy seventh birthday, all of you. Um, now, here we are. I've got this balloon partially blown up. If this balloon is going to get any bigger, how is that going to happen? It's not going to happen by me trying to tug it from the outside with a bunch of commands. The only way the balloon will get bigger is by blowing more air into it so that the 
pressure on the inside is equal or greater than the pressure on the outside. That's how it will get bigger. Is that right, someone? Help me. Yeah, I think so. Boy, I wish I'd studied science more. It would have really helped. Um, it is just like that with us as a church body. And, of course, now I'm stuck with this balloon. If I let it go, it will make a rude noise. But I can't hold it the rest of the talk. Can you just live with this? There we go. Right. If we are not to be conformed to the, let's be honest, selfishness of the world around us, if we're not to be conformed by the independence of the world around us that does tend in a chapter one direction. But instead, we are to be transformed to live lives of love that please God. We need his spirit to work within us, like with the balloon. And what do we need him to do specifically? We need him to grip us with the grace of God that our eyes might be opened more and more widely to realize that everything that God is calling us to be in these verses towards one another, he has already been to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was the very saving of us. Hate evil. Well, Jesus hated the evil, that was tyrannizing us, didn't he? Enough not just to call us out on it, but to bear it himself on the cross so that we could live without it for all eternity. That was the depth of his hatred to the evil that was destroying us. Honor one another. Well, Jesus left the glory of heaven, didn't he? To go to the very depths of hell, he was spat at and beaten, and stripped, and scourged, and laughed at, and humiliated before everyone. So that we might be raised to the honor of being called God's children who receive his praise. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. I remember reading something that helped me with this by the Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McChain. Perhaps you've read it also. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit to make it more intelligible because, I mean, he was Scottish. Um, But speaking to his own congregation, he said this. I know your objections to being generous with your money. You think to yourselves, but this money is mine. And these people don't deserve it. And they'll probably waste it. And you're right. But what if Christ had said that to you? He might well have said, this is my blood. This is my life. He might have said, these people are all wicked rebels. Let me lay down my life for someone actually good, for the angels or someone like that. And Jesus knew that millions upon millions of people would trample his blood under their feet. That most would despise what he did and despise him for doing it. And that many would even make it an excuse for sinning more. And if he thought any of those things, where would we be? But he came to save us. And he left the 99 to go after the one who was lost. And he poured out his life for the undeserving. McShane continues, My dear Christians... 
Christ is glorious and happy for doing what he did. And you, if you follow him, will be also. Friends, that's how we grow to be more generous, isn't it? By looking to Christ. That's what blows the balloon a little bit bigger, right? And more generally, how does the body live a life of corporate love? We've got to get grace into us. The lifeblood of the body is not our love for one another. Very easy to read these verses that way. That the thing that makes a Christian church work is people loving each other. No, 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 no. The lifeblood of the body is Christ's love for us. And when that is flowing well, the rest of it is easy. No, it's not. But it's easier. And so as we wrestle with each of these 13 commands, as we wrestle with the idea of being in a body at all, and in particular this body, Lord, why did you put me in this body of all bodies? Surely you must have made a mistake. As we wrestle, we've got to pray for the fervor of the Spirit to renew our minds in a series of mini repentances that we would see and know and feel that God putting us into a body and not just any body, but this body is not God being mean. It's not in punishing us for past misdemeanors. It's not him setting us a challenge to see if we pass or fail. It is him doing the most loving thing he could possibly have done. Do we believe that? Should we pray? Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Love must be sincere. Heavenly Father, as we work out this connection between faith in you and love for one another, please help us. Please be with us. Please. Lord, I've thrown out a million things here. I mean, there are 13 commands in five verses. can't possibly internalize all this in one go. But we do pray that by your spirit, you would help us to land on that thing that would be most helpful for us to chew on, perhaps to chat over with others here who we trust. Please help us to grow. And we pray with that thing, that what would be biggest in our mind is not the new resolution we're making, the thing that we have to do, but the way that Christ did it for us. Please would that be big for us. Please would that be a very living and real and present thing for us. Would we feel it and taste it and rejoice in it? Please, Lord, would your grace change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.